Welcome back to Patriot to the Core podcast. I'm your host, Thad Forrester. Thank you once again for listening this week. And I really can't thank you enough for all the support over the last several months. I don't know, six months, seven months, something like that. Uh, and for the reviews. So we kind of, uh, I kind of live off of those really for the success of the podcast. So if you haven't rated it, uh, please do so. I'll go to iTunes and do that. And uh, today we were going to talk to Dan Sheehan, who uh, is a Marine. Uh, he's out of the Marines now, but uh, he is a, he was a Cobra pilot. He deployed to Iraq twice, uh, once as a pilot, once as a, he was he was on the ground, more of in it was a forward air controller role, which was uh, kind of like what my brother Mark was as, a, as an Air Force combat controller. But uh, we're going to talk about his book after action, about his job while he was deployed, what is what it was like just being in his head and the, the decisions he had to make, and then how he had to deal with some of those decisions and uh, and the, the, just the just the rough life he had uh, while he was deployed and then after he got home for a long time. But you know, thanks to a good wife and to maybe a, and to the, the Marines play to help as well, he was able to overcome and he says he's doing great now. So we'll talk about his his journey. It it just goes. It's just a big big long circle and now he's a stay-at-home dad and so we all know that there's nothing easy about that either but uh, Dan is a, a very uh, enjoyable guy to talk to he's a great American uh, he comes you know his dad was a marine his brother is a marine so it's in his blood and uh, he I really thank him for serving our country well Dan Sheehan welcome to the show thanks dad it's a real pleasure to be here how is the life of a stay-at-home dad well, I ended up getting both of them, both of my kids out in the water for a good uh, three-hour surf session this morning. Um, so they're tired out and watching a show. So I've got about 45 minutes before they start pounding on the door. Okay, well, we'll, we'll make this quick. <laughs> Mine are already up from their naps, so we just got to keep them away from the door. There you go. All right, so I want to talk about your book uh, after action and this is not your only book but this is the book i've read and finished it recently and uh, i know you got several awards from some maybe some um, independent publishers and organizations and you can explain that if you'd like but uh, that's kind of how i was introduced to you is through amazon um, but you start out in the beginning talking about um to all to those who bear the burden of peace and I know you talk about that at the end but do you mind just addressing what the burden of peace is no not at all um, that was something that I stumbled across um, probably about a year into actually writing after action and trying to figure out what it was what was the kernel of knowledge that I was trying to pass on what was what was important enough about my experience for someone else to want to read it um, and I, I stumbled upon the uh, translation of the Mohawk, Mohawk Indian tribe's word for warrior, the term they used to describe warrior. And that term was uh, you know, one who bears the burden of peace. And I was about six or seven, probably about six years after my, my second and last combat tour um, and was still trying to figure out what had come home with me from Iraq uh, because something had, I was different, but I didn't know how, and I didn't know what I brought home with me. And reading that phrase and understanding, you know, that this is, this comes from a society of, of a tribal society that really understands 
what it means uh, to be a warrior, um, maybe in many ways better than, than we do in our quote-unquote civilized society. And to have that word, which I and a lot of us use almost as a throwaway, um, it could, you could be used you could be describing a uh, an off-road truck or a video game or um, or Mark Forrester. So you put all these people, you put all these things into a into a term, you dilute it down until it means very little. And so when I found a term for warrior that meant a lot to me, I really had to dive into it and try and figure out why. And what I, what I came to realize was that that definition, one who bears the burden of peace, much more closely described how I felt than any uh, than any other definition of the word had. And so that's why I put it in there, because I, it helped me to pull all of my uh, all of my thoughts together and to focus them. And it also made me realize that what I was going through as a as a quote unquote warrior was really no different than what a police officer might experience after a, after a traumatic event or what a, uh, a paramedic or a school teacher or anybody in life, you go through a, you go through a traumatic event. You know what? You carry something with you after that. And my writing to date has been built around trying to understand and uh, understand what I had personally brought home and then identify why I wasn't better prepared to deal with it. And I think that uh, that was what brought me through from After Action, my first book, um, and then moved on, moved on into Continuing Actions, which is my second book. And the second one is the first one, After Action, is very narrowly focused on my experiences in Iraq in 2003 um, as, a, as a Marine Cobra pilot. And then uh, again in 2004 as a forward air controller um, with the the uh, beginning of um, the Marine Special Operations Command. Um, then the second book, Continuing Actions, is a guidebook for veterans. It's my lessons learned, boiled down, and applied against uh, a lot of. There's been a lot of scholarly work done on uh, on the side of cultural mythology and bringing together the various myths that have survived the millennia. And uh, there's a one man in particular, Joseph Campbell, who compared a mythologist. His work really resonated with me and made me realize that the journey that I've been through thus far was a three-part journey, and it's the traditional journey of a warrior. Um, and I'd only been prepared for two of those uh, components, the initiation and then the, the adventures. But there's a whole separate third part called the return, and it's one that we as as modern warriors are not prepared for, and we're not even taught to expect it. So we're really left exposed, I think, to needless and predictable injuries um, on the backside of our combat tours. And so my second book, Continuing Actions, is my attempt to, to rectify that and to draw attention to it. What's been the reception of your second book? It's been universally uh, well received, and within the within the um, the limited readership that it has gained, um, I've been very pleased with with the responses I've gotten, not only from um, 
best-selling authors like Jonathan Shea, who is a, a eminent uh, psychiatrist and um, also written, he's, he wrote uh, Achilles in Vietnam and Odysseus in America um, about combat trauma and uh, moral injury um, in Vietnam and with Vietnam veterans. So I was really pleased to get uh, get his his support. Um, he he did end up writing the uh, the foreword for it, and um, beyond that, the emails and the contacts that I've gained on uh, on Facebook have been very supportive from the veterans themselves, but also another population that I hadn't necessarily expected it from, but the. Uh, the wives, sons, and daughters, um, and husbands of servicemen and women, both from our modern, our current wars and also wars past, who are gaining a deeper understanding of what their loved ones are dealing with or did deal with. Um, some of the more, more touching ones came from people who's, who are old enough to be my father, and they were writing to me to say that their father, a Viet, uh, I'm sorry, a, a Korean War or a World War II veteran, had displayed all of these uh, responses that I'm describing, and but didn't understand them, and so their families didn't understand them, and their families suffered right alongside them for the remainder of their lives. And these men and women were contacting me long after their loved ones had passed, and saying, you know, thank you, you've you've given me some insight into a man that I never knew. And uh, that was, that was extremely flattering because um, it wasn't, it wasn't intentional, um, but it was just explaining my, my experiences and my stories. And throughout this whole process, I've just learned how universal they are um, and how wrong I was at the beginning when I thought that, well, I'm the only, I must be a puss. I'm the only one feeling this way, mm-hmm. uh, but that's, it's been disproven. Well, you do a really effective job of putting the reader in your head and not just, I mean, it's like when you're in battle, when you're in the air, when you're looking at the enemy, what's going through your head, you know, hey, I've got to be 100% certain, certain, should I, should I pull the trigger, should I not, um, should I trust them, are they really surrendering or they're not, I mean, it's, right. and then when you get home, you know, everything going through your head and then you and your wife's relationship and, and before you got married to her, I think... I guess because you were so effective at, at putting people right inside your head, that's I guess that's why I think that's why I was kind of stuck to the pages anyway. Uh, especially once I got about once about halfway through the book, I was really I was really just glued to your whole story. Um, oh, you know okay. one one thing that was funny is uh, you talk about the Chippendale show. You had the guys pulling their pants off, waving them around. Uh, what, what was that about? <laughs> <laughs> well, we were. Uh, this was the first full day of the of the ground invasion, um, and so the night prior, we had scrambled from Ali Salem and uh, flew north, destroyed our our border observation posts uh, on, the, on the Iraqi side of the border to clear the way for the ground offensive to push through. And uh, then after that, we recovered back at a at a airstrip in the middle of the desert, really a road with uh, that had been kind of flattened out. We called it a FARP, a forward arming and refueling point. Um, so we've got ordnance and, and more fuel there. 
slept underneath the birds and then scrambled the next morning and we flew probably about six hours before this particular event occurred and uh we got routed over to and when i say we um i'm talking about a, a four aircraft uh division of of marine gunships so marine uh cobras um, we flew together in the same four aircraft division for the entire the entirety of the invasion um, sometimes we were down to three we, we had one one uh aircraft get shot down and um and stayed out in the field for several days before it could be recovered. But uh, we all fought together throughout this entire time. And so my front, my, uh, we stayed in the same crews as well. So we were what we called combat crew. Um, and so I flew with the same pilot, uh, Gash, who's uh, one of my best friends still. And uh, then we were dash four in the division. Ike and Weasel flew dash three. Um, Spock and Count, sometimes Spock and Jojo were in uh, uh, Dash 2, and then lead was BT and Fuse. And so they ran the division, and uh, we each had separate uh, duties on the backside of that. So we end up getting uh, about six hours into the full, first full day of flying and fighting. We get routed over towards um, towards the western part of uh, the, the Iraqi-Kuwaiti border, to help flank um, or help cover a group, a cat team, a combined uh, anti-armor te- uh, team, as they move north along this uh, uh, MSR, this hardball road. Well, on one side of the road, there were they were exposed to um, some high-speed avenues of approach, and they didn't have enough to to cover. So they pushed us out to um, to fly down that road a little ways and keep eyes on it and just let them know if anything was coming towards them from that direction while they were exposed as they were trying to, to uh, just move north with a minimum of uh, – they didn't want to go east or west very much. Their, their directive was to get north as fast as possible. Um, so we screened them to the east when they started moving north through this area. Well, not long after we got there, a, uh, a large fuel truck started barreling – down the road towards the uh, the Marine convoy as they're moving on the on the uh, north south road. This one's screaming towards them out of the desert, and it's just a big orange fuel truck that you would see driving around in an airfield. And uh, Weasel called it out, and we the fac uh, the the um, well he he would be considered like kind of like the your brother CCT or a, or a JTAC. Uh-huh. He was embedded uh-huh. with the ground force, and he's he's who we were talking to. Who we cleared all our fires with. Um, so Weasel reported the uh, the inbound truck, and his orders were simple: don't let it through. And so he wasn't controlling us, but he was giving us what is now called Type Three casts. So he, he said, as long as you guys stay over there and fire in that direction, you're not going to hit any friendlies. So we knew we were good. We dove in on this uh, on this vehicle, and I say dove in. We, we were all at all times. We were at about 50 feet and below. Um, so we really just turned towards it and started uh, working up our own weapons parameters, which didn't take a lot. We were we were ready to go hot on this as soon as we could figure out what was uh, what its intentions were. It was still about a mile and a half to two miles away from the uh, from the friendlies when we got. There was nothing to hide behind, so this guy could see us a long way out, and uh, as soon as he saw us turn towards him. You saw that it kind of lock up the uh, the tires, 
and skid to a skid to a halt on the road. And we kind of figured at that point he might not be as big of a threat as we initially thought. And then when he the driver and the passenger bailed out of the cab of the truck, um, they both yeah stripped down. They didn't have any flags, so they just took their pants off and wore waved them over their heads. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we we didn't uh, shoot. <laughs> Uh, you, you actually, there's a lot of humor weaved throughout the book, but um, what, what was the difference between yours and Gash's roles? Well, Gash was in the rear seat the entire time, and uh, we did this for a reason. The, the Cobra is a front seat, back seat aircraft, um, and you can't switch between them when you're flying. There's five feet of, of uh, instrument panel basically between you, and there's no way to move back and forth. And because of the because we worked together and trained together for over a year um, before we even uh, showed up in Iraq, we knew each other really well, and I knew and trusted Gash to be able to keep me out of the dirt and fly the aircraft as well or better than I could. So that allowed me to sit in the front seat and focus on employing the weapon systems. So in the Cobra, the the rear seat is primarily the pilot and I wouldn't say pilot in command, but it's primarily where the flying pilot will sit. And so the pilot at the controls is in the back. He's got, he or she would have all of the instrumentation, all of the controls of the aircraft. Everything can be flown and handled that, uh, from the, from the back seat. The front seat does not have the same controls. Like you can't start the aircraft from the front seat. Um, and there are certain other things that you can't do from the front seat. So, the, uh, but what the front seat has, the back seat does not, are the sensors. Um, and this is a whiskey model Cobra, so it's actually an outdated version. Um, the Marine Corps is currently flying the Zulu model, which uh, I'm not overly familiar with, but I know that some of these limitations have gone away with the new model. But the whiskey that I was flying, um, only the front seater could see what the uh, – what the sights, what he was looking at through the sights. There's no repeater to the back seat. And so that gives the front seater, um, let's see, with the with the direct view optics, which is just kind of not electronically enhanced, you get about a 13 times magnification on your sights when you're when you're looking through that. And then you can use the electronic stuff and you go up into the FLIR and you can get up to 50 times zoom um, on that. So you can see some pretty well um, from the front seat. None of that gets translated to the rear seat. So in the front, I had responsibility for the uh, engaging with the 20 millimeter, uh, the laser for our Hellfire missiles, and then all operations with the tow missiles. Um, Gash in the rear seat had our unguided rockets and also the 20 millimeter cannon when we locked it into fixed forward mode or if he had it slaved to his helmet. Um, but as you'll remember, our, our 20 millimeter was pretty, uh, let's just say it did not work very well in the environment we put it in. So I think we had, of all the combat missions, I think our gun worked about 25% of the time. Um, so most of our engagements we went into without our, one of our main weapon systems, uh, operational. So anyhow, our roles were Gash kept us out of the dirt and kept us from running into anybody else and kept me in a good firing position as our as our engagements progressed. Um, he he maintained situational awareness off of the three other aircraft that we're that we're fighting with 
um, as well as the wires, the trees, and any uh, enemy fire that he could see. I kept my head generally down in the bucket, looking out through the nose of the aircraft and uh, trying to acquire targets deeper and farther away than um, than Gash was with his naked eye looking out of the cockpit. I was trying to look deeper so that uh, we could identify possible threats before they engaged us. Or, worst case, identify them as they are engaging us. Because um, that was one of the one of the lessons that I learned was that if these guys were smarter and fought more, fought a little bit smarter, then we would have taken a lot more uh, damage for sure. Um, but movement was a huge giveaway. As soon as you see movement, you can if you can see the movement, then you can kill whatever's there. But mm. if there's no movement, then it's really difficult to uh, to get eyes on a specific thing. Well, I want to I wanted to talk about the some of the internal dialogue you had, and I can't remember if what I'm about to say all happened at the same time or not. So you'll have to clear me clear that up. But I know there was a I think a Marine second lieutenant who was killed. You found out about that, and there were some um, you had some I guess some conversations with yourself about you know you needed to be there was no way to be a hundred percent certain before you pulled the trigger. Right. And then you were wondering, had, did my inaction cause the death of this Marine? So can you walk us through that? And, and I'm not sure if those are all happened at the same time or not. They did. They were linked. Um, and when I went into Iraq, this was my first combat experience. The invasion of Iraq was my first first time pulling the trigger. Um, and I wasn't naive enough to, or wasn't so naive to think that it would be easy to do it. But I had convinced myself throughout the Oh, let's see. I guess I'd been on active duty for seven years. I had about 1,200 hours in the in the Cobra, and uh, I figured as long as I was certain that I was killing the right people, that I would have no qualms about it. And it would be it would be kind of binary. If the ones and the zeros lined up and it came out to the appropriate sum, they died. If they were wearing the uniform in the battle zone and uh, met the rules of engagement, they died. And what I came to realize that first day when we were fighting was it was never, it was very rarely that cut and dry. Um, and these particular men that we were, we ended up engaging, we watched them for quite some time sitting in there. I mean, they they were, Four Iraqi soldiers sitting in a fighting hole watching us, watching us, watching them. And we're orbiting. And no, no rep, no weapons were visible. There was nothing going on. They were just sitting there having tea, watching us, watching them. And we went back and forth about it in the cockpit and we we're talking and trying to figure out, all right, so this is, so, so what? So we just kill these guys? Is that, is that what this is? Is that how this goes? None of us had been through this situation before or in, in combat before. So it was kind of a, it was kind of a standoff. Um, and it felt very, un, it was obviously very uncomfortable, um, to be in it. Now these men eventually as a while later, um, we're still watching them. A gust of wind comes up and it kind of peeled back. A, uh, a tarp that was spread over one corner of the fighting hole. And we could see that there was a, uh, a AAA piece 
hidden underneath that tarp. We could see the, the barrel, the muzzles from a, a ZPU-4 that was buried underneath there. And that made the decision very easy. And uh, we ended up destroying the uh, destroying the ZPU-4. And if those four men were still in the hole, then they were killed as well. Um, but later that or around that same time, there were other groups of Iraqi soldiers in trenches out and about in the area. And because we're looking at this wide swath of desert and you would see a, a little flag pop up, a little a little surrendering flag um, would pop up and wave in the hole. And like, all right, well, they're not they're surrendering. So on to the next one. You look at the next one. You see if there's if they're engaging you, they're not engaging. There's no no fighting going on. No ground forces had been through here yet. So it was very. It's kind of all right. What do you what do you expect them to do? If they want to surrender, are they going to get up out of their holes and walk south until they find Kuwait, or are they going to wait until they see uh, the enemy coming towards them and then surrender right then and right there? How how um, proactive do they have to be to surrender? And does one flag in a fighting hole mean that everybody in that fighting hole is surrendering? I don't know. I still don't know. And the decision that I made that day was to not target some of those men that were standing in the fighting hole. There were weapons nearby, and they were waving white flags, but they weren't walking south. They weren't – nobody was taking them into custody. There was no one to, no one to do that. And so I made the decision to not kill them because I don't have any other option. I, if I open fire – with the weapon systems on that aircraft, then everybody in that general area runs a very high risk of, of death or, or serious injury. And so there's no there's no shooting the gun out of their hand, you know, type stuff. It kind of you, you if you fire a flechette rocket, you take out a football field. Um, and so there's no surgical ability here. Um, so I said, no, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fire. And then we ended up recovering, getting back down to uh, um, Kuwait, and we found out that the division that came in to relieve us on station, another division from our squadron, three of the four aircraft took battle damage. They got shot, um, mostly small arm, well, yeah, all small arms fire, and in the back of the aircraft. So it seemed like these men in the holes were surrendering when the weapons were pointed at them, and then when the aircraft turned away, they were firing. And because we don't have 360 degree view, we, we only see what we're looking at at any one time. Um, so if something's behind us, then we're constantly exposed uh, all directions. And later that day, a Marine second lieutenant, uh, um, Terrell Childers, was killed um, when they when his battalion uh, took over one of the GOSPs, gas oil uh, separation plants. Um, and. It's it's certainly possible that some of the men that were in my sights took part in the actions that ended up killing him, killing uh, Lieutenant Childers. And, you know, obviously I don't have clairvoyance on any of that. Um, I don't have I don't know that my inaction contributed to his death, but I don't have to know 
in order to feel feel responsible for it. And I attempted to use that. I did find out about that the next day, what had happened, and used that knowledge to try and bolster my own bolster my own um, re- resolve to shut down the the voices of humanity and compassion that are in your head and just focus on my job. And as time went on, I became more and more effective at doing that. Um, and as I'm able to look back with, uh, with hindsight, I can see that moving in that direction, compartmentalizing concepts of, of humanity and more morality and pushing those things away and outsourcing that to the orders that I'd received and the rules of engagement, which I lived under compartmentalizing those and pushing them away and refusing to, uh, to allow them voice was the initial stage of my emotional numbing and the numbing process, which continued throughout both of my combat tours and into the years afterwards. And it wasn't until I started writing and or got kind of pushed to the point where I needed to figure out what was bothering me. And it wasn't until I started writing that I was able to begin the unpacking, the decompartmentalization process and really allow myself to pull out these thoughts and these concerns and these fears and these worries and allow them to run free in, in my own head. Um, and it's been, been a long process, but I, as I trace it back to its genesis, it basically began with that decision and one that I felt was morally right not to engage. And then when the evidence stacked up against that it said, yeah, you might've been morally right to not engage at that time, but there's a, there's a chance that the, your decision led to his death. And that's part of that's part of the burden that you carry with you. Yeah. Would yeah. I, knowing that, would I have made a different choice that morning? Would I have killed those men without considering the fact that they might not uh, might not be combatants anymore? I don't think so. I think I still would have would have done what I did, but I hope that I would have been. I don't know. I, it's not worth it to, or it's not really beneficial to go back and and. Uh, play Monday morning quarterback, especially with yourself. Yeah. But just knowing that that event happened and that I was carrying that, that, uh, that guilt and that uncertainty forward with me was a, uh, was a, um, important realization to come to in my own journey home. I mean, these are decisions that, you know, I mean, very few of us ever know what it's like to deal with, you know, to have to make those calls. I mean, at some point, you know, I know you, um, Maybe it was around then, or I'm not sure when, during that first deployment, you know, you realized you started being a little more negative. Your emails home were more negative. And, and I'd, like, what I'd like to talk about now is what happened when you got home from your first deployment? Because you were you were you had this warm welcome home from lots of people and from strangers. And then what happened after that? Well, you're right. It was, and this was to put it in, in a timeline context, my squadron was one of the first units sent home after uh after major combat had ended so we were back in the states in i think june 
maybe it might have been May of 2003, late May, early June of 2003. And the war started in, in early March or mid-March of 2003. So we were, we were fighting right up until the uh, about three weeks before the uh, um, before we were home. And that was when, hey, major combat is over. Our squadron had redeployment orders to go out to Okinawa, so they were going to send them home first for a quick uh, quick swap out of gear and then off to Oki for six months. Um, and so we got pretty much the first flights home. Uh, um, and you're right, there was a... There was a, an outpouring of patriotic support, especially out here in, on, uh, on the West Coast, where there are so many military bases. You got Camp Pendleton, Miramar, you got 29 Palms, you got Yuma, and then you have all the Navy bases down in San Diego. It's it's a very Navy, uh, sorry, it's a very military-friendly um, environment here. And you know, you go walk around outside with a with a, a short haircut and a nasty uh, nasty tan line from whatever gear you've been wearing and people notice and they would walk up and they would shake your hand. And, you know, there was a time you couldn't, you wouldn't be able to buy a drink. You went out to a bar. Um, somebody was, was picking up your tab for you. Now, this is a recurring theme in American, uh, military inter interventions and wars and things. There's an initial outpouring of support and there's an initial slapping on the back and, we love you. Support the troops. Let's go. And, and that kind of fades away pretty quickly. Um, and then it becomes, by the time I got home from my second combat tour, it was just what you did. So there was no, nobody really, there would still be people who understood, who would, would go out of their way to, uh, to ask you about things. But for the most part, once the initial invasion had come and gone it petered off the the knowledge and the awareness of the average um citizen around around here anyhow really dropped off to to very little to very low um about what was going on outside of outside of the country um so personally for me coming home from the first uh first trip it was yeah very warm welcome um very supportive I pretty much got home, went on leave, visited family and friends, and went and did all the things that I had dreamed about while sitting in the desert. And it, it felt really good, but I just felt this need to keep moving. Um, there was no, wasn't a, I didn't have a comfortable place to relax in my own head. There was no relaxing. It was, okay, what's next? I'm going to go on a, um, I'm going to go camping up in Big Sur and go surf every day. Awesome. All right, boom, get that done. All right, what's next? I want to fly back to the East Coast. So I'm going to go um, go hiking in the Mahusics with uh, up in uh, New Hampshire and Maine with uh, with my buddy Day, uh, my buddy Dan, and and uh, my younger brother. Let's go. I'm going to do this. Okay, 25 mile hike today. Let's go. It's just it was on 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 next next next. Um, and I can see now that that was. I could see now why I was doing that. Um, and this, I had this idea or I understood that coming home could be difficult, that I'd been through something different and that there's a, there's a danger of, of, uh, kind of stumbling or doing something wrong or having something bad happen 
when you come home from from combat. But I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how to avoid it because I didn't understand it. So I figured if I just kept moving, it wouldn't catch me. And so I just did that, kept moving. That translated back into the squadron too. When I got back, I had a a, a flight to prepare for um, my NSI check, and so I just jumped right back into that, studying, preparing, getting it ready. Um, I flew that mission, got that qualification done, and then it was okay on to the next thing. And about this time is when I ended up uh, getting orders over to uh, Marine Special Operations Command Detachment One um, to work as their forward air controller. Um, and this was, you know, an absolute lifeline for me uh, because it took me out of the cockpit and it gave me access to all the, gave me the opportunity to do all the stuff that I'd ever wanted to do in the Marine Corps but hadn't done yet. So, you know, get to go to jump school, get to go to free fall, get to go uh, through SEER, get to go through multiple uh, weapons training courses and different, just different stuff that wasn't in a normal uh pilot's repertoire, I really enjoyed getting exposed to it and being able to work as part of a team with these uh, very highly trained professionals that were uh, populating what we call debt one. Um, and so that just continued my running forward, never looking back, just look, just move forward. There's nothing to look at back behind me. And I, I was aware enough to go, you know what? I don't have anything to look back at. I didn't get shot. I never, I never had a buddy die in my hands. I never, you know, fired a missile into a into a school chill no, a school schoolyard and killed a bunch of kids. I don't have anything to look back at and and worry about, so I'm not going to even entertain it. I'm just going to push forward. And that was my mindset when I uh, when I was at work. It worked out really well because there was always something to be doing. It was always prepping for prepping for or uh, or exercising or what have you, it was always moving forward and getting ready for the next combat deployment. It was when I was at home that I started being very becoming very uneasy when it was quiet and inactivity was definitely an enemy and I'd do anything I could to avoid sitting around, but there's sometimes you just you can't. You're gonna have quiet time. And I couldn't make my internal energy level match the match the quiet time or I couldn't make it ramp down to even be able to sit in the quiet time. So I was like one of those little kids who just can't sit in school and it just up and down and up and down and up and down running around. Um, you know, you want to give them Ritalin, but it was my Ritalin turned into alcohol. And so it was, all right, I don't have to, I got to relax. I'm supposed to be sitting here talking with my fiance. I'm supposed to be getting ready for dinner but I, all I can think about is I need to be out running. I need to be doing this. I need to be going somewhere. I need There's something I need to be doing. I don't know what it is, but there's something. And so I started putting uh, putting a glass of alcohol in my hand, putting a, a gin and tonic, um, and that seemed to work. That calmed things down. I could sit there. I could have a conversation, and I was doing something, but, and I was, but I was, for all outside intents and purposes, I seemed pretty well adjusted and was relaxing. Um, and then one drink, maybe that didn't quite do it. So I'd go get another one. Um, and as long as I was having a drink or getting, getting slightly buzzed and I was able to kind of quell that irritability 
push it away and keep it at bay to be this normal person in normal society. Um, and then usually that would be about the time when it was getting to be uh, noticeable, that'd be about bedtime. So off you go, get up the next day, do it again. And it became a very comfortable yet a uh, very comfortable crutch to use because it was always available. Um, but it was a very slippery slope and it was one that I didn't necessarily see at the time. And of the many things that I'm grateful for and lucky, uh, about my, my now wife is that she saw it. She saw the slippery slope that I was on, um, well before I did and called me on it. She called me on it on, in a way that only she could have, um, and that, uh, that saved me a much deeper, uh, trip down into use of, use of alcohol to numb, which so many of us do on a, on a daily basis. Now I at least understood the dangers of it and just how, uh, just how hypnotic that, uh, that siren song was. What role did spearfishing play in your healing? That became a really valuable uh, thing for me, and, and again, hindsight being 2020, when I look back on it, I can see exactly what it did for me. At the time, I didn't have any concept. All I knew was that when I went in the water, I felt good, and I felt when I came out of the water, I was drained, and just every ounce of irritable energy need to do something was gone. And that was enough for me to keep doing it as often as I could. It was about the only place other than at work or when they're either flying or shooting where I felt comfortable. Um, and I could do it on my own time whenever, whenever the opportunity arose. Um, now, when I look at it from, uh, through, through hindsight, I can understand that what I was doing was I was giving that energy, that that irritable need to be doing something. I was just that. It's a difficult term to, or a difficult feeling to describe, but you're just beneath the threshold of fight or flight. So it's just being ramped up right to the edge where you are either about to go run and go somewhere, or you're ready to fight whatever's about, whatever's around the corner. You're you're right at that threshold. And you could always, you could go either way. And that's obviously not, uh, not a, an energy level which is conducive to real strong, uh, relationships or even being able to walk downtown. So when I got in the water, however, that energy had a place to go. And it's the place it went was, it was designed, it went into keeping me safe. It went into keeping me Monitoring my breathing, recognizing when I'm when I've uh, maybe hyperventilated too much and or have been breathing too heavily and I'm in danger of blacking out if I do dive. Um, maybe it's keeping my my senses aware when I'm looking at one fish, knowing what's going on around behind me, knowing what's going on on the other side, or even even if you don't know what's going on, recognizing that there's a threat there. And being in this constant low tingle of its excitement, but it's excitement with real repercussions. It can be dangerous underwater. 
and there there are big sharks out here. Um, and so it was that was always in the back of my head. So spearfishing for me became if combat was was heroin, then spearfishing was methadone, and it allowed me to step down to take that energy that served me so well in combat and divert it into something else and kind of dilute it into the into the ocean and flush it from my system. And so that's what, what spearfishing did for me. When I'd come out of the water, I'd feel, feel great. At first, I felt great for about 10 or 15 minutes, and then it would come back in. I'd be like, all right, what's next? What's next? Um, over time, that respite lasted longer and longer until it got to – the point where it was the rest of the day, I felt great and I was it calm and I was able to be in the moment and not constantly be moving forward. And over time, it's just allowed me to to dissipate that energy down to normal. Um, it's even better than than pre combat levels uh, because I know I know how to ramp it up, but it doesn't stay up anymore. Um, so spearfishing was critical for me, and, the, and what was critical about it was the the risk, and the uh, and the the level of scalable danger that it uh, that it provided me. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff talked about with with risk taking activities for veterans. You know, if, um, you name it, buying a buying a Mustang or buying a, a fast car and racing up the highway or motorcycle and going racing or or jumping out of a, a plane with a, a flying squirrel suit on and flying down a mountain. There's a lot of dangerous, thrill-seeking stuff that guys do. That are, a lot of it's just straight-up stupid. But you can't expect somebody who is – in my case, I was almost, almost uh, 30 – when I got back from from Iraq, but most of most of our veterans are much younger than that. Um, you can't expect a young man or a young woman who have lived and thrived at this absolute knife edge of awareness that combat those who are successful in combat generate within themselves. They become extremely proud of this and extremely effective at channelizing it in their environment and where they're where they're working. Um, can't expect somebody who has that valuable tool and that and has become, for lack of a better term, addicted to that level of an, of energy. You can't come home and give them a give them a set of knitting needles and go, hey man, you need to calm down. Mm-hmm. It's just not work. You gotta you gotta find something that provides the tingle of excitement. It it takes that energy that they have honed to a knife's edge, and it lets it go somewhere that may kill them, but very unlikely. So you mitigate those those risks um, as best you can. But some some level of risk, um, I think, is is important and is and is healthy. It's it's not realistic to take somebody who has thrived in in levels of risk that most people can't imagine, and then take it away from them cold turkey. Yeah, makes sense. So, so where are you at now, Dan? How are you doing? I'm in a great spot. I really am. Um, I thought that writing writing after action was it. I thought I was. I thought that I had done everything I needed to do to fully come home and putting it into into words and and sharing it 
with other people I thought was an important step. Um, but I thought it was the last one. Um, and then events after that showed me that it wasn't, I was still this, this thing about, about, uh, combat trauma and the emotions and reactions that you have there. It's a, it's a circular path. You pass through this multiple times, um, through your life and, and, you know, could be, I'm not going to assign a, a time for, for a full revolution through it, but suffice it to say that I went through it once when I wrote it, when I wrote After Action. And then over the next year or so, I kept finding myself back in this, kind of stuck in this area. And the words that were, that were resonating in my head and the feeling that was in my head was that one of those things that I said at the, at the end of, of After Action, which was this thing in my, in, that was locked away in my, in the depths of my psyche is this concept of good people don't kill. I killed. So what does that make me? And so that, that phrase, which I initially, when I, when I initially latched onto it and, and started delving into it, felt very liberating. This is it. This is what's bothering me is this thing I killed. So am I now a bad person? Is this what differentiates me from anybody else who takes life? And there, you know, I, I go through this in much greater depth in the book and explain most of the, the flippant answers that came into my head were, were easy to, to shunt away. Um, and so I won't go into them here, but what I didn't realize was that just in asking that question, I left myself, I left myself no way out. There was no way to answer that question without damning myself. And for a while that felt good. But then after that, it became a, uh, it became my stop point. Every time I started going through a, a tough time, I would get to that point where it's like, well, you know what? It's because you're a bad person because you killed people. And it, it kind of, you know, when you, when you say it in shorthand like that, it kind of goes, right, well, that's, that's stupid. That's not the way this works. But to boil it down into its essence, that would, that would be where my brain would stop monitoring reality and would just jump ahead to, you know why? Because you kill people, you're a bad person. You know, why did this happen? Why did that happen? Well, you know why? Because you kill people, you're a bad person. So that became what's called a stop point. And it came to a head. It really uh, got to the point where I, was, I told my wife, we were, we were still living in, uh, in northern Virginia, and neither one of us were happy there. It wasn't, uh, wasn't an environment that we particularly enjoyed. Um, and... We had, we had long talked about coming back to, uh, Southern California. And that became kind of the outside requirement that I laid on. I said, I don't know why, but I can't, I can't stay here. I can't stay in Northern Virginia. We have to move back to, uh, to California. And, we talked about it. We planned it out. Um, she was able to make a, uh, a shift within her office. She has the, the, uh, the career, the outside, outside of the family career, um, for the house that keeps us afloat. And she was able to make that work, um, getting us back out here to, to, uh, San Diego County. And, uh, then, and one of the things that she told me was, all right, we'll do this. But if we get out there and you're not, you're not okay. If this comes back, 
then you have to talk to somebody. And that was the deal we made. Like we'll we'll move back, but if it doesn't fix, quote unquote fix, whatever it is, you have to talk to somebody. And at first we moved back here and it was just I mean it was Shangri-La. We were in Happy Happyville going and doing all the fun stuff that we used to do, surfing, being in the ocean, all the all the good things that I'd been pining over during the six years that we'd been away from here, um, all came there and was all available. And then uh it happened one again one day, just kind of started going back down that same road in my head. And I found myself one day, I had all my, I had a surfboard, I had my, all my dive gear, had everything loaded up in the car, and I was standing on the on the bluffs looking out over the ocean at nice waves and, and clear visibility. And I just, I couldn't come up with any energy to do anything. I was just, you know, you just hit that, sometimes you hit that depressed point where there's just, there's no ounce of motivation. And so it, standing there, and, and this was the culmination of a, of a long kind of descent, but at that point I said, all right, you know what? I haven't figured out all of this myself. I need to, I need to talk to somebody. Um, I didn't know who I hadn't, had never been to the VA, had never talked with anyone. Um, but a friend of mine recommended I go to the vet center, which I had to look up and see what a, what a vet center is. Um, but it's a, it's a subset of the veterans administration, but it's set up for, uh, for specifically to serve the needs of combat veterans. So when you go there for your first appointment, you got to bring your DD 214. You got to show that you have uh, combat experience, um, that you were in a, a, a fight, um, that you got your, got your combat action ribbon or your CIB, um, shows that you were, you were actually in it. Um, because they're the population, and I, I say that there's a there's an additional population that can serve that can get uh, services at the vet centers, and those are um, victims of military sexual trauma and also family members of any one of these pop- members of the population. Um, so they're very tightly focused on the needs of the combat veteran and the needs of of uh, rectifying traumatic experiences. So I was nervous as all get out going into this place. I figured it was just going to be a nightmare because who's ever heard anything good about the VA? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I went in there and it was night and day from what I was expecting. There were, uh, <clears throat> I'm getting long winded on it, but, um, I think the most important thing to point out was that of the, I think there were 11, uh, counselors on staff, nine of them had recent combat experience in Iraq or Afghanistan. And that was critical to going in, sitting down with somebody and realizing that you don't have to explain what a Marine is. You don't have to explain what this, this world that you just came from. You're not an alien emissary coming in and, and expecting some alien who has no concept of what you've been through to somehow alleviate whatever you're suffering from. There was none of that. It was, it was a conversation with, I, my counselor ended up being a senior chief who had been a corpsman for 20 plus years. He'd spent his whole career on the green side working with, working with Marines. So, I mean, there's no one that Marines love more than a corpsman. And you get a senior chief who spent his whole time in, in the FMF Man, that was an easy conversation to have. And he 
in a very short period of time helped me work through some of those last stumbling blocks that I had set up for myself. And one of them was that phrase, good people don't kill. Um, I did, I killed. So what does that make me? He centered in on that after we talked and, uh, and helped me rephrase that in a way that didn't damn me just by the statement itself. It gave me a, a much healthier way to question what I had done and what I'd been through without automatically um, damning myself for it. And it was just a simple rephrasing, but it was, uh, when do good people kill? And just that lifted a, lifted a tremendous uh, weight off my chest as I just sat there and allowed myself to chew on that. And it was a lot easier to chew on that than it was to, to um, smash my face against uh, good people don't kill. I killed. What does that make yeah. me? Yeah. So Dan, what, I guess in closing, what would you, maybe what's a summary of some advice or counsel you give people who are struggling with, you know, with killing someone or just with the images that they've seen or the sounds they've heard from combat? I think the best thing that, uh, that, it, that I could say in that stand or, for someone going through this this same road is that let them know that hey, you're not alone, you ain't the first, and you're not going to be the last. And a lot of people have gone through this. Some of us have figured out good ways to do it and are trying to pass that information down to make sure that that it, that it uh, can can help. Other people have not put have not had the the opportunity to heal. And to move forward, and you can learn from watching them too. But you need to you need to recognize that you have been changed by your experience. How you deal with that change determines whether you move forward as a warrior or label yourself as a victim, and end up having to come back from that as well. So I think that there's a way to there's a way to move forward after combat and after a traumatic experience that allows you to turn it into a positive in your life that if you if you refuse to face it and learn from it and and experience the fully experience the negative you'll never move past it and you'll you'll end up with one foot living in peace and one, one foot living in the present and one foot living in the past and that's not a good place to be no no well and now you've got you've got a best selling book after action and maybe continuing actions is, is best selling as well, but you'll you'll never know the impact those have had on people. I know you get emails and you people talk to you and you have an idea, but you know, some people will never come forward. But it's great that you have something written down that will forever be out there for people to help them heal. And um I mean there's so much that we could talk about and I have so many pages uh, so many pages dog eared in your book and you know things to to ask about and I mean and then it's the humor too I mean you know things you learned and you, you went through a little spiel there where at one point in your second deployment you know about you know guys who die from sniper fire die shoeless you know you yeah. learned and I mean there's just some just some some funny little uh you know odd stuff in there and and it's but yeah I mean the things that you you talk about dealing with grief and um, not trying to fight it and bury it and how you did that for so long and 
it just didn't work, and I don't think it ever works. No, I don't so, think it does either. Well, anything you have in closing, Dan? Other than to other than to thank you, uh, Thad, for for inviting me on, and uh, and also for giving me an opportunity to read uh, about your brother Mark. Um, sounds like a hell of a man, and I'm really glad that you were able to gather so much support and so much information from uh, from Mark's teammates and the men and women that he served with um, to put together such a cohesive and uh, and really dramatic. Um, picture of of his tour out there at fob cobra um and what he what he did and, and the type of man he was so i really appreciated reading that and getting to getting to meet him yeah well well thank you for reading it and uh thanks for the time today i mean you i really appreciate you uh bearing the burden of peace for for me and for all of us and for being just a, a patriot to the core and and for being willing to share your struggles and your your internal dialogue and you know, the battles that you had in, in your head uh, for so long. And I'm glad, you know, you've got some, you got two kids now, right? I do. Yeah. And, and um, I've read some of your funny posts about them and the, a typical day in the life of, of okay. stay at home, Dan. And, you know, it's, I guess all of us with, with kids know what that's like. <laughs> um, but, but I'll, I'll have some, uh, I'll have show notes. I'll have links to your books. On Amazon, is there anywhere else that you would like to direct people to learn more about you and to get or your in your books? Um, one other avenue would be to uh, to stop by my my personal website, um, and it's it's uh, DanSheehanAuthor.com. So all one word, just DanSheehanAuthor.com. And on that website, you'll find um, videos of gun camera footage that I took during the engagements that uh, that I write about. Um, so they're actual gun camera footage from my aircraft. And then there's also a lot of there are a lot of pictures in there from uh, from that time frame that I correlated to the pages in the books uh, when these events took place. So if you end up one of the one of my regrets was that I was unable to put pictures into the book. Um, and so this is my way of trying to work around that. So if you do have a copy of After Action, you can look at the look at the website, pull up these pictures and say, oh, well, that's what Teddy looks like. OK, there's Teddy. All right. There's Weasel. There's Gash. And oh, there's the there's the this uh, the ship they were on or the engagement that uh, was talked about on these pages. It's all written right there for you. So it'll give you a, a little deeper understanding maybe of the uh, of the aircraft and the people involved. Great. Well, thank you. And uh, for your listeners, please, if you would go to iTunes and rate the podcast, uh, if you enjoyed this, and hopefully you did, you can just go ahead and just um, select five stars and be done with it. And um, please uh, look up Dan and follow him as well. So, Dan, we'll talk to you later. Thank you. Thank you, Seth.